coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Now kids 12 and over can get Pfizer. But what about the adults? Is it time for Nasi to step away from the microphone? It's all on the way. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Health Canada has approved the use of Pfizer vaccine in kids 12 to 15. Who cares? I'm going to wait to hear what Nassie says. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. You cheeky bugger. Hear that? You should be happy. Uh, he's going to get it ahead of me. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, get back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Week number 59. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. As I walked in, uh, I was in the kitchen like five minutes getting some water before I came in here. And my wife said, uh, time to change the outfit there, honey. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, you know, you've been wearing that, uh, my daughter gave me a university sweatshirt. You've been wearing that pretty much all week. Well, it's not like I haven't changed the unders. It's the underside's been changed. I'm just, you know, I'm rocking the new sweatshirt because I like it. Apparently I'll have to, uh, do a little rotation a little later on today. All right. Uh, interesting show coming up as we continue uh, and some more <laughs> more news about uh, COVID-19 and vaccines. And kids uh, 12 to 15 are have been approved by Health Canada uh, in order to get the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which is great news. But uh, like everything else, where do they fit into the queue uh, as more comes into the province uh, and the country coming up in the next couple of months? Where do where do the kids go in, in that discussion? And uh, do we have to wait and see what Nasi says uh, in regard to uh, all of this? Uh, let's play a report from Tina Trajani here on uh, uh, the latest update and where we are with kids and vaccine. Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine was previously approved for Canadians over the age of 16. But with this announcement from Health Canada, the jab is now approved for those over the age of 12. Data from the clinical trial showed that the vaccine's efficacy after the second dose in preventing COVID-19 in this younger age group was 100%. Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Supriya Sharma says 12 to 15-year-olds experience similar mild side effects as adults have, such as a sore arm, chills, or fever. While younger people are less likely to experience serious cases of COVID-19, having access to a safe and effective vaccine will help control the disease's spread to their families and friends. The Public Health Agency of Canada is to provide an update tomorrow on the vaccination rollout plan for this age group. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. All right, there you have it. Uh, good news. Uh, it has been approved, me, meaning Pfizer has been approved for uh, those 12 to 15. Let's bring in Dr. Barry Pecos, public health and preventative medicine physician, professor with the Dalatlana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Barry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Good afternoon. Thanks. So your thoughts, first of all, doctor, on uh, the approval of Health Canada for Pfizer 12 to 15. And that's great news. Uh, we certainly knew it was coming. Uh, the studies, um, you know, are were ongoing. They're now completed, and and actually, there's studies ongoing right now for six months to 12 years old. So hopefully, we'll hear about those soon. But it is good news, and you know, this is what's going to enable kids to go back to school and for parents to have real confidence uh, for them going back to school in September. Where does this leave 15 to 18? Uh, are they? Uh, are we having? Is this is this, is this overlapping information and just uh, something that, that that hasn't been clarified? Much like some of the other information. Why? Why? Uh, where's 15 to 18 on this? Well, no, 16, 16 and up. It's been approved for 16 and up. So this basically lowers it to 12 and up. So um, you know, most of our vaccine uh, campaign thus far has been on adults 18 and up. So, you know, when we're thinking about how many people do we still need to vaccinate um, in the younger age groups from 12 to 18 um, is around a a million people in Ontario, 990,000 kids um, that are fitting in that age group. And, and, you know, if we're getting um, almost a million or 800,000 doses a week, it should take two to three weeks to vaccinate that group. So um, when will we uh, when do you think we will have enough vaccination to get to this age group is or is this an age group that we should push to the front of the line? 
No, I don't think we should push them to the front of the line because honestly, um, you know, realistically, we're not going to get to them before the end of the school year this year. So, um, you know, I don't think they're at high risk either. They've had a rate of about half of what adults have had. Schools, you know, are a really safe place for kids. There's a lot of protections there and, and they're not doing essential work. So, you know, they, they have been uh, somewhat protected and, and also they're less likely to have serious effects of it, although we have had some cases. So I don't think they're going to go to the front of the line. We, we've, we've successfully given one shot to just over 5 million uh, Ontarians. So that's about 35% of the population. That means we still, of the adult population, we've still got about 6.5 million adults to go. And, and, you know, at 800,000 doses uh, a week, that's going to be, you know, a good eight weeks or nine weeks. And then we'll get to the kids uh, after that. So, so a do little you, bit of, you know, there's a there's a line of sight, but a little bit of time. So do you see the kids being vaccinated by the time they get back to school in September? Yes, I do. You know, it, it's it's all up. You know, the Health Canada approval is, is the first step. We've got to get NACI's. Um, statement on it, and and they'll go with the evidence as well, I'm sure. And then we have to get, you know, um, health the um, Ministry of Health's uh, plan, and that gets to the public health units how they're going to implement it. But you know, by September, I, I do anticipate that that we'll be able to give the vaccine to all kids who want it, and kids can start school safely in September. And that is, and that is also assuming that by that time, mo- uh, most adults in uh, Canada will have received their first shot. Correct. Absolutely. And the plan is to have, you know, the majority, the vast majority of, of adults done by by the end of June in Ontario and, and Canada. And, and I think we're well on track to, to do that. If the vaccines that we're expecting do come in and, and we have every reason to think they, they will, uh, then we're on a, at a good pace to do that uh, before the beginning of the summer, the kids over the summer. And then, you know, we'll, we'll be in a better place than we are now for sure. Uh, uh, any concern that NASI may throw a wrench into this and provide other information? Uh, and all we have to do is go back 24 hours to what's been going on in regard to them um, basically contradicting what health officials and and uh, and government has been saying, which is basically get the, the first shot you can. Uh, do, you, do you anticipate any sort of conflict in messaging here? No, I don't. I mean, the, the people at NASI, the, they are definitely experts in their field and they include you know public health specialists uh several of them um who who very much understand you know what's going on uh with the outbreaks and 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 also understand communication and messaging so i I don't anticipate that they're going to um give any other advice than you know immunize kids uh 12 to 15 and the 16 and 17 year olds similar to the advice that they gave uh for adults with respect to pfizer why do you not anticipate them saying anything uh, contradictory when they have four times already? Just um, because I, Pfizer has not been uh, scrutinized, or it has been scrutinized, but it hasn't proven to, to show any difficulty the way AstraZeneca has. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think NASI has said anything contradictory to anything that any of the other, whether it's Health Canada or the Ministry of Health, has said. It's, it, you know, it's just providing... Uh, a bit of a different perspective. There's this sort of ministry perspective. There's a population perspective. There's an individual lens. And that individual lens certainly would say that, you know, if you have a more efficacious and less side effect vaccine uh, and you're not at high risk of COVID, makes sense to get that that better vaccine. So, you know, it's not conflicting messages. It's just a sort of a different approach to it. And there's no doubt that they thought about how that approach would play in the media. And, and, um, you know, I, I think, they may be reconsidering that approach now, but, but you know, the many on that committee who, who definitely did discuss exactly everything, um, you know, that we've been discussing in the media over the past 24 hours, it, it would have come up, and I'm not sure they would have made a different decision. There, there are ethical principles that they're considering as well. Uh, let's talk about NASI a bit. Um, no one's denying that uh, obviously having uh, lots of opinion is is good and that they're coming at it from a completely different angle uh, than Health Canada is, and we can all understand that and appreciate that, and we certainly understand by now what their mandate is. However, uh, the communication has been absolutely dismal. It appears that they're so uh, focused on what their objective is they aren't aware of what the reaction of the public is once they release this conflicting information. Will we see a change there? Um, I, I don't think so. I'm, I, I'm not sure you, that, that that's a, a, an accurate characterization. You know, some of the people on NASI are actually leading the vaccine efforts in Ontario and, and on the ground leading 
leading the vaccine rollout. So I think they are really aware of how things um, would have played out around the communications. But but I think what they were trying to do is really to meet their mandate as an expert advisory group um, at a national level. So for Ontario, you know, in, in many ways, it didn't make sense. But had they offered some kind of different information than they did or a different opinion than they did, um, then it, it might have not you know, made sense for the rest of the country as well. So, you know, it is difficult. We've got different outbreaks in different parts of the country. So, you know, I think they're doing a good job and I think they're, they're open to criticism and to, to, you know, reflections on, on the kind of statements in their communication. And, and I'm, I'm sure they'll be even more thoughtful going forward, but I really don't have concerns about nasty. Uh, again, I, and not to, to belabor this, Barry, in any way, um, but again, I, you know, I, I don't think, well, maybe some are questioning uh, the validity. I'm certainly not. I understand and where they're coming from and the need for uh, different angles to, to, to look at this, to see this through, few, uh, through different lenses. But let's be honest, uh, you also have to look at, at how this is affecting public health, how this is affecting the, the public health crisis that we're in. And it seems that NASI has been more focused on what their job is at hand, and we all have a job at hand, but they're not aware of how their information is being digested in the public. So I would say check off the box, absolutely. They're doing all the right things. They're, they're giving us a different perspective, but they have been horrible in, 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 in the communication of this and putting it into proper context as to not add more anxiety, add more fear to the mix, as opposed to easing people's fears. You know, there's an interesting article in the Post that, you know, we can't handle the tough information. I don't agree with that at all. What we can handle is conflicting information. And somehow, government agencies got to come out. That doesn't mean they have to be on the same page. They can come at it from different lenses, but when it comes to public messaging, they're doing more damage than good. There's more confusion today, Barry, than there was a week ago, and I can't see how that's positive. Yeah. No, I, I definitely hear you on that, and, and I think NASI hears as well. They read the newspapers. All those those individuals read the newspapers, and you know, it is true that many of these uh, committees that advise uh, with respect to vaccines, certainly the ones in the States and some in the EU, um, do not... Um, you know, have public facing communication and they very intentionally do that. Um, and, you know, you could certainly argue that actually having these independent groups, you know, giving their own opinion can add to confidence among people. But in this case, you know, you're right to say that it has been somewhat confusing at this point. And, and I think they will reflect on it and, and perhaps think differently next time. It really looks like, Barry, there's way too many doctors in the operating room and nobody's talking to the patient. Nobody is aware or telling the patient what's going on. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I mean, I, I think there's, you know, people do have their ear that the people on NASI, um, the folks in Health Canada, Public Health Agency of Canada and the Public Health Unit, Medical Officers of Health certainly have uh, an ear to what's going both in the media and, you know, there's an incredible amount of, of surveying with regard to vaccine confidence and hesitancy and looking at the data around what age groups, what people, what demographics are getting the vaccine. So I think there is that ear to the ground um, and, and there are that connections and, and there's just, you know, there's a lot of things at play. There's a lot of dynamics at play. When, when these, um, you know, uh, when these statements come out, the time of day, exactly what time of week, what else is going on, causes it to play out differently. So, you know, like I said, I think they're going to, you know, think long and hard about what's happened over the past 24 hours. But, um, you know, they, they, um, they're, you know, excellent people, experts that really do have the air to ground and are experts, particularly in Ontario. And so, um, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll be seeing get to get back to the 12 to 15. I, I don't think we're going to see anything confusing or contradictory with respect to their statement. Will we see change in this going forward? And again, like this is the fourth time that there's been a, a conflict in the information or it's changing. And I have them written all down in front of me. February 21st, March 1st, March 16th, March 29th, April 18th. Those are both conflicting uh, uh, issues between Health Canada and uh, and NASI. Is this going to stop? Are we going to see a more uh, a more thought out message here? Uh, I'm I, I'm not sure that we want that, to be honest. You know, I think one of the greatest challenges in Ontario um, in our whole pandemic response overall has been that some of the agencies like Public Health Ontario or like the Chief Medical Officer's Office has been, you know, totally lockstep with the government um, and and not offering their own opinion. So, um, you know, I, I 
I certainly hear you that, that it can be a little bit or, you know, very, you know, significantly confusing and anxiety provoking for people. But, you know, all of those conflicts or, or alleged conflicts that you noted there were really just about, you know, the, the risks involved with the J&J vaccine and AstraZeneca and, and the relative preference to, um, to the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. And I think, um, you know, that's, that is actually consistent messaging that they've provided the whole time. It just, it, it is problematic how it's been understood. And, and like I said, they do need to think about that going forward. So uh, is this the public's fault? No, I don't think there's, it's anyone's fault at all. Um, you know, I think everything with respect to the vaccines and, and with respect to, you know, efficacy and necessity of lockdowns and how they're implemented is, is you know, all nested within this social dynamic, right? It, it, there are so much going on, so many different people and, and um, opinions uh, involved that it, it's hard to get it perfectly right uh, every time. I think the good news is that we're in a really good place with, res- with respect to vaccine. So, you know, despite what might have gone over the past 24 hours with AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, we have a lot of Pfizer vaccine coming in. We're going to complete our, um, you know, our, our vaccine rollout to most of the adult population and now, now to the 12 to 15 for the most part with the Pfizer vaccine. And, and you know, I'm looking forward to success and, and getting more or less back to normal um, probably a little bit sooner than we thought we might. So if uh, you have taken the first dose of AstraZeneca, should you, should you take the second, considering what NASI has said, or should you wait and, and get a Pfizer or Moderna? So, you know, I think exactly what NASI said is what people should do, and that is if you're in an area like most of Toronto, Peel, many other areas in the GTA, and you're an essential worker and you're, you're exposed to the virus, you're in a hot spot, then absolutely you want to get protection as soon as possible. And getting the AstraZeneca vaccine, if it's available to you, is, is certainly the right thing to do. Um, if you don't have access to the second dose, which most people in Ontario do not at this point, then if you have had the AstraZeneca vaccine initially, then, you know, the, the data isn't quite out on that. And we will see an assay statement and, and more, um, you know, information about how we approach getting a Pfizer vaccine or a Moderna vaccine after AstraZeneca. And there are ongoing studies. I have every reason to imagine that it's going to show that there is good protection with that and that it is safe. And that's what many people who've received AstraZeneca probably will do. Dr. Barry Packus has been with us, public health and preventative medicine physician, professor with the Dalatlana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Here is today's daily commentary. This is the fourth time during this COVID-19 pandemic, NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, has created nothing short of chaos around their mixed messaging, which rarely reflects the position of political leaders or medical experts. So how long are we going to continue to let this elite group of siloed doctors stand before the public and give their ever-changing opinion with really no awareness of the damage it is causing outside their world? In other words, is NASI not aware of the confusion they are creating and whose job is it to clarify and add contrast to their revelations while crafting a responsible message? Don't get me wrong, NASI is an advisory committee and their opinions deserve to be heard, but only when they have been communicated to other health organizations so a conflicting destructive message does not come out the other end in the middle of a health crisis. This is the fourth time NASI has contradicted Health Canada and the government, this time naming the preferred vaccine after everyone else is telling you to get the first one you can get. The Prime Minister needs to lead and be transparent and consistent with all government messaging. There are simply too many doctors in the operating room while the patient has no idea what is going on. I'm Scott Thompson. I'm going to make a proposal, and that is no more NASI press conferences. (laughs) I think the two words, right? I mean, I think the two words that come to, to my mind uh, that describe this is disappointed and irresponsible, um, causing yeah. unnecessary concerns and confusion within the public. And it's been a yo-yo effect since AstraZeneca was approved in late February by Health Canada, whether it's the age restrictions changing, mixed messages. And at the end of the day, I understand transparency is paramount, and we very much support that. Um, but let's let the data do the talking. 
That is Justin Bates on yesterday's show, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, saying it was irresponsible and disappointing uh, what NACI did yesterday and basically contradicted everything uh, that the feds have said. Bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Timothy, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always a pleasure, Scott. First of all, your thoughts on the Pfizer announcement today of uh, okaying, uh, Health Canada okaying it for kids 12 to 15. Yeah, we were waiting for this one for a while, and I'm very pleased to see it. I mean, the kids are part of, as we spoke last uh, last week on the very topic, uh, kids are very much part of the, uh, reaching herd immunity, and we need to get there. We will get there. It's just a case of when, and the kids are part of that. Even though they don't seem to suffer very much, uh, they're very much part of the uh, the uh, stepping stones approach that viruses take around the community. So we need to get them involved as well. Uh, any idea when we will get to them? When will we have the supply to get to them? Do you, th- do you see them being vaccinated by September? My goodness, you know, Canada started off slow out of the starting blocks, and we've been uh, sort of uh, begging and and hoping we're going to get some from other countries because we have this zero capacity for producing our own vaccination, uh, uh, at least with COVID. And that's 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 the problem. We're dependent upon uh, other people. And, of course, with the rest of the world, with, with India now, saying we're gonna, not going to export anything because we're so desperately in need of vaccine themselves. They're way below 1% vaccination at the moment. They're mm-hmm. a huge country. So you can understand from their point of view. But then again, the rest of the world, look at, look at some of the African countries. They haven't even got their first vaccines yet. Nobody's been vaccinated yet in some of these countries. So there's an enormous uh, lack of balance around the world. Your thoughts on what uh, we've seen in the last 24 hours in regard to NASI and their conflicting information with what we're hearing from health officials and politicians? Oh, it's, uh, it's, I wish this would not happen, you know, Scott. I mean, uh, I think you, your word in your, in your intro at the top, you said context, and that's everything. It's, it's okay to, to communicate from a scientific point of view. Uh, yes, we have found one out of uh, 10 million of this out of the other, uh, and, and to announce that. It's good to be transparent, but you've got to put it in context for people. You, you and I, person in the streets, we need to say, what does it mean for us? It's perfectly understandable to say, oh, the experts have found something over there, must be something wrong, but let's look at it in context. The risk right now of a random person in Ontario up till this point having been infected with what we would call a confirmed case of, of uh, COVID infection is about 3%. Believe it or not, about 3% of the population have become uh, a, a COVID case. Um, the risk of becoming, if you do not become vaccinated, the risk of becoming uh, uh, ill with this uh, blood clotting syndrome is between one in 100,000 and one in 500,000. So you're looking at sort of tens of thousands of times more at risk by not becoming vaccinated than you are becoming vaccinated. And to kick it all off, one of the side effects of becoming uh, COVID positive is these blood clots. So you can't escape them anyway. If you look hard enough, they're going to be there anyway. So get the vaccine. There's absolutely no question. Many people in my family, close people, uh, friends and and, and frail people as well, have had the AstraZeneca, and uh, good luck to them. That's exactly the right choice. So should uh, NASI be speaking in public? Well, you know, you remember, uh, you and I probably remember a time when there was a a person called a the public relations officer. Do you remember all companies mm-hmm. and institutions had them? They were normally very good-looking, young, big bouffant hair, usually female, and, and teeth that went ding, you know, when the sunlight shone. Those people have disappeared. They've gone out to pasture now. Because nowadays, the people who should be doing the communicating, as we, you and I are doing now, are the people who are technically competent, and then in addition, they have to know how to communicate in context so that people understand. They're completely transparent, but given in a way that the people can understand what's going on. And that's what I think we didn't see with this very, very technically expertise group, this this vaccine group. They're good at their job, but they didn't really know how to describe what's going on. It's perfectly understandable that somebody would say, oops, uh, what's happening over there? 
my next question was, is NASI aware of the confusion they're causing. And again, uh, you know, I'm not here to, to pile on NASI. Uh, as you said, it's great to have all the information. It's great to have transparency. It's great to look at it from different lenses. However, when it's time for communication, we have to put it into context and it, not, not even get on the same page, but at least put it into context. This is the fourth time that NASI has given conflicting information uh, in regard to what Health Canada has said. Uh, are, are they aware of the, and I'm going to call this hell that they're creating, the anxiety that they're creating, and, and, it's, and, and making it more difficult for leaders to try to get their citizens vaccinated. Are they aware of that? Oh, I think you hit it on the head here. Yes, I think they're aware now because they can't have avoided it. The whole country is talking about it. I think what they need to do is to, in any group that's involved with communicating with the public, usually through the media, but sometimes directly to the public, whatever it is, they need to be looking at, at uh, getting some expertise in how to communicate that so it doesn't confuse people, it doesn't get people upset and raising their blood pressure. They talk about it in terms that are easily understood, that are absolutely correct and precise, and yet they're in context. They're brought down to reality, day-by-day meaning, and that's what's been missing, I think, in many of these cases. So, so yeah, we don't want the, the other extreme, you know, the, the, so the communist extreme, yeah. uh, where we see a single person, the official, totally unbelievable uh, voice, and nobody asks us to say anything, all their mouths are zipped up. No, we don't want that either. But, but at least somebody who has got a message to, to bring out, let's have that run through some experts in communication, risk communication skills. It's a, it's a, it's a, a science that's been sadly neglected in many areas. And we live in a life in extreme. We live in a life of extremes. It's either way over here or way over there, and uh, the middle has seemed to been lost. The center has seemed to be lost in all this. What does the prime minister do now, doctor? That this information comes out. How does he sell this now? I think he has to uh, give it over to the uh, health people who are more familiar with communicating that. In other words, the experts who do have that kind of skill. The politicians by themselves are sort of floundering around because they've got, on the one hand, the ability to communicate as a politician, but they don't necessarily have that background with the the health science. Some of the health people, as we've seen with the NASI group, have all of the science stuff, but they don't have the communication. So we need to bring in both sides. So the idea of risk communication experts, uh, how, how, in other words, the ability, you know, in a classroom, the ability to put yourself at the back row with that rather dazed-looking guy there with an open mouth, put, put myself in that person's shoes, did what I just say mean anything to him? How did he or she understand what I've just said? And if you can do that, then you're, you're a good communicator or a good teacher, whatever the term you want to use. I don't think that's always the case when, the people, when you and I get communication from the government. What should those who have, uh, how should those feel who have had an AstraZeneca shot and waiting for the second? Do you go for a second AstraZeneca shot and roll the dice again? Uh, do you wait for a, another uh, shot in, in, in the research on mixing vaccines? Again, more questions thanks to NASI. W- what do you say to people who've already had this shot? Well, the people already had it. I think in Canada now there's been... I think of all of the millions of shots been given out like that, there's two cases that have appeared. One of them was fatal and one of them wasn't. Uh, and, and so, in other words, if you had the, the AstraZeneca shot, for example, that's the one we're talking about, essentially, uh, and, and you've had that more than a week ago, you're fine and clear, and you're already building up antibodies at a, at a really good rate, and good luck to you. In terms of the second bit of the question, what about the second shot? Well, if that comes along in time, that's all very well, but what about uh, varying? Now, with the, 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 uh, the varying vaccine, the jury is out a little bit on that. We, we should be hearing very soon, uh, and there are some authorities who are beginning to believe that if you vary the vaccine on the second shot around, remember, medical science tends not to do that. It likes to stick to what's on the label, period. But there's some people saying, look, if you give a second vaccine that's different, it might actually have some advantage. We don't really know that yet, Scott. We've got to wait till the results are in, but there's a possibility we might see a broader 
uh, response, you know, a broader type of antibody response right. that might actually protect you a little more. Um, so uh, what message do you have for the public that's listening now? Do we believe NASI? Do we believe the government and Health Canada? Actually, there's both government agencies. Who, who do we believe? NASI is correct in the sense that they're, you know, scientifically looking down the microscope and they can see one case in this million group of people and one case in this 15 million group of people. But let's bring the, let's take away the microscope and look at the real world, the world that we're right in right now. And that is that we all have a very high risk of developing this infection roughly about 3% to become a confirmed case and around 6% likely in Ontario to date as the incident rate of becoming any kind of infection, whether you, you, it's asymptomatic or not. Those figures are something that's, that's real, and that's the context. So in that context, get the vaccine. So whatever vaccine comes along, you get it. Don't even worry about the vanishingly small risk that one or two people in a million people might, uh, might uh, experience. That's not what we're worried about. The risk of death is enormous. Uh, case, the risk of infection is enormous, and the risk of death is, isn't far behind. Uh, about one in a one in a hundred risk of death from a, from an infection. So uh, that's the, the don't worry about it. Just just get that darn vaccine. The soon we will get out of this, Scott. There's no question. Mm-hmm. All pandemics end, but whether we're gonna, it's going to be long term or short term, that's up to us. Uh, it's the mitigate immediately in the next week or two. It's the mitigation. That, in other words, the distancing and the masking. Beyond the next couple of weeks, it's the vaccine. That's what's really going to bring it to an end. But it will come to an end. Let's hope it's sooner rather than later. Will um, Will we see more of what we've just heard from NASI uh, this week? Or will this change? Will this stop? I hope somebody vets their, their uh, releases and say, look, how are the people going to listen to this? How, what's the, what's they gonna, what, what are they going to focus on when they hear this message? And let's, let's make it... It's accurate, let's make it precise, but let's give it in context. I mean, no risk, no risk is floating out there by itself. Everything we do is a risk-risk comparison. You know, with the risk of death by walking to work in the morning compared to the risk of death by driving, the risk of going on a bicycle or a canoe or a camel. We've got to compare one risk with another. You don't see And what they're doing is taking a, an isolated, ex- vanishingly small risk in isolation, and, of course, people look at this and say, oh, there's a risk there. We shouldn't be worried about it. But compared with all the other risks, it's it swamped. It, it disappears. It's totally swamped by the increased risk everywhere else. So carry on the course. Let's hope that these official committees uh, get some advice about how to communicate things in a more realistic way. I just have to ask clarification on one more thing, Doctor. And that's, and basically the message that came out of NASA yesterday was, you know, if you're not in a high-risk area and you can wait for a better vaccine, you might want to do that, or you should do that. Um, is that a good message? Well, okay, let's, let's look at the... Uh, the Especially in a time back. when we're trying to yeah. get everybody vaccinated as quickly as we can. Heck, we're even rationing doses because we don't have enough to do this. Yeah, yeah, but in that situation, just grab the dose. But, but your question's a good one. If we can go to real extreme here, you remember there's a disease that we used to have called smallpox. Mm-hmm. And we got rid of that back uh, about before 1980, actually, long before. Um, but that vaccine was, in fact, a bit dangerous. There was a, a measurable risk of disease and illness and even death if you got the vaccine itself. And so you wouldn't vaccinate lots of people just on the off chance that the disease might come back because you're going to get a, a large number of people ill and dead from it, from the vaccine itself. Uh, but, however, when smallpox was creeping up into your town and it's moving around into your neighborhood, there's no question you get the vaccine. Uh, and then that's in a very, very tiny, tiny way is what's going on here. In the areas of Canada where there's absolutely no, we haven't seen a case for the last four months of, of COVID and the chance of it appearing are very re- remote well, you can, if you get the luxury, you can choose whichever vaccine you want, and you may want to choose one over another. But in an area like Toronto or Mississauga or Hamilton, in some cases, or Ottawa, where this thing is moving through the community, 10 or 12% positivity rate, in other words, all the samples coming back, that's the percentage of the positive, 
this isn't the time to start looking at the at the niceties or, or the cosmetics, if you feel like, of the vaccines. We just got to get those vaccines into those arms because you are at risk in a very big way. It, tens of thousands of times more risky by not being vaccinated than by being vaccinated. And we're certainly not at a point where we can choose, are we, doctor? No, 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 no. We're way away from that. Our positivity rate hasn't gone down at all yet. It's still up to 10 to 12 percent. And back back in the, a year ago, we were looking at the U.S. and saying, oh, my goodness, they're up to 12, even 15 yeah. percent. How horrible that must be. And we were down to around less than 1 percent. We're point seven percent of the tests coming back positive and we were hoping we were going to stay there no it's moved steadily up three percent five percent now it's up to in some areas in brampton area it was momentarily somewhere around 22 percent mm-hmm. of the tests coming back positive you can imagine that's that that equates to some of the worst in the world this isn't the time to hesitate Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus in the School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Timothy, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, and I guess there's no surprise here, or perhaps the amount is, is a surprise, but Pfizer forecasts $26 billion. Uh, they will learn from the annual sales of the COVID-19 vaccine. To talk about this, Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, and is here with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be with you. Uh, surprised about the amount of uh, money that Pfizer is going to make from this, uh, or can this be expected during a worldwide pandemic? And uh, obviously, uh, no one's talking about how much it costs to produce a vaccine such as this. Can you shed right. some light? Right. Well, let me see if I can help you a little bit here. So at this point, there are four vaccines out there, but two different pricing philosophies. So the first two, Pfizer and Moderna, both were very clear that when they were developing this vaccine and putting it through its tests, what have you, that when it was available, they were going to sell it for a profit. So their price, and for instance, with the Pfizer vaccine, you know, it's around $25 Canadian per shot. That uh, that's what the cost to put it in your arm. Uh, Moderna's in the same ballpark, maybe just a little cheaper, maybe twenty-two dollars a shot. That price includes a profit margin. So sales—that's uh, the overall number, twenty-six billion dollars. Profit will be lower, probably on the order of two to three billion out of that twenty-six billion. Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca came at this differently, and they said while there is a declared pandemic. While there is a declared pandemic, we are going to price our product at break-even. So, yes, we're going to generate revenue from it, but we're not planning to generate any profit until after a pandemic is canceled. So just, again, for comparison purposes, uh, a jab of AstraZeneca costs, you know, somewhere between $2.5 and and $5 a shot, depending upon where you're getting it in the world. But that is their break-even, so that just offsets their cost of making it. In fact, in the first quarter, AstraZeneca reported as a company a loss because they weren't generating extra money from these sales. So why the different philosophy here? Um, I think it speaks a bit to corporate corporate philosophy and, and sort of what we call the, the, uh, the values reflected in an organization. Uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson said they felt it was wrong to be making a profit during a global pandemic. And so they have said we're not going to put any extra into our price to give us a profit margin. Pfizer and Moderna said, well, this is the cost. You know, we've been trying to develop an mRNA vaccine for 20 years. We've been investing lots and lots and lots of money in doing that. Got us all ready for this, and and we feel quite comfortable generating a profit. Neither number, whether it's $25 a shot or $5 a shot, is going to necessarily break the bank. Uh, But it's interesting, consumers just haven't been asking uh, for that part of the equation at a time when we talk about socially conscious companies out there, no one seems to be noting any difference in these philosophies. Uh, is this going to hurt uh, the public reaction to Pfizer and Moderna, or it, especially when NASI comes out and says it's a better vaccine, then no one's going to care about this. It is a better vaccine. 
Yeah, so I, I think what you're going to see is while we still have a pandemic and while we're still trying to get people vaccinated, it is what it is. It's the cost of doing business, whether the vaccine's $100 a shot or $2 a shot. Let's just get those shots out there. What's going to be the more interesting question for people like Pfizer, Moderna, etc., is is this going to be an ongoing revenue stream? Now, uh, they projected $26 billion this year. I actually think it's going to be over that. I think they're going to generate $30 billion. This is just Pfizer now, more than $30 billion in sales from it in 2021. And in fact, by the end of this year, we're still not going to have the globe vaccinated. So I think they're going to do pretty well in 2022 as well. But then the question becomes more 2023, 24. Is this going to be an ongoing revenue stream for them? Just just to give you a sense of it, uh, prior to COVID, uh, Pfizer's currently best-selling drug is something called Prevnar 13, and that's an injection for pneumonia. Well, you know, pneumonia is something that's an ongoing problem that Mm -hmm. we've got. Or another example of this, they have a product called Eliquis, which is a blood thinning product. People who've had a heart attack, they recommend you go on a blood thinner, makes it easier to recover. Well, those would be ongoing revenue streams. But are we still going to need the COVID vaccine three years from now, four years from now, five years from now? There is a model that says we might be, for at least for the next two or three years, getting some sort of an annual booster, which again would be great news for them. But there are other people who say, no, once you've achieved the immunity, that may be all you need to do. So I think in a way they're cashing in while they feel they can. Uh, has the poor messaging uh, around AstraZeneca from both the company and NASI, has this helped Pfizer and Moderna? Well, I think the thing that has helped Pfizer and Moderna the most is these rare, very rare cases of blood clots that we've heard with both Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. And, and this is, again, it's a really funny thing, Scott. You know, you have a better chance of being hit by a car crossing a street mm. in Hamilton than you have of getting blood clots from AstraZeneca. It is 99.999% uh, effective with no chance of that. But people zoom in. You know, I call it the blood on the snowbank thing. You see one drop mm. of blood on a snowbank, it looks like a, a whole pint was spilled from somebody because it stands out so much. And I think that has probably helped them more than uh, the vaccine people. But look, you know, this again is a running total. A year ago, you and I would have had a conversation about when do you think we might have a vaccine? And I might have told you a year ago it could take two to three years to develop. We are in a, a joyful situation that a vaccine was developed truly in light speed and now our problem is simply getting it out there so i I think again when this year is done and we get a chance to take a breath uh it will be interesting to see what the consequences of people's actions during the pandemic were uh what about the mixed messaging in around nasi and health canada we all know they're coming at this from different angles and why they're doing what they're doing but should the messaging be consistent should the left hand know what the right hand's doing here should this be kept in context yeah so the short answer is yes the left and right hand should know what they're doing but i also think we have to understand that this is a moving target Every day we learn more about the disease. Every day we learn more about the vaccines. Every day we know better about what can be done, what can't be done. So, for instance, uh, I think it's just today. It might have been late yesterday. We heard the news that I think it's Pfizer has now been approved for people between the ages of 12 and 18, so a younger cohort. But that was based on waiting for those trials to come in and that data to be gathered. They aren't just going to approve it on somebody's whim. They have to have facts to base it on. And those facts are ever-evolving as we go. The other ongoing question is, as this uh, virus continues to mutate, and we're getting all these different variants uh, out there, will the original vaccines uh, be able to Mm. meet those needs, or will we need a modified vaccine or a broad-based vaccine? In fact, apparently the... uh, the vaccination councils in both Canada and the United States are now considering running some trials in which they mix the vaccines. Yeah. So right now I've had a shot of AstraZeneca. I feel quite lucky. I've had one shot. But rather than getting a second shot of AstraZeneca, I might be better to get a shot of something else like a Pfizer because yeah. each one does something different. And the longer we go and the more we can put these trials out there, it's just it's true with any disease. What we know yeah, about keeps cancer going. now is different than we did 50 years ago. Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Be well. 
Glad to be with you. All right, let's move on. Uh, yesterday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce held a news conference, a reminder uh, that coming up at 1.30 this uh, afternoon, Health Minister Christine Elliott will hold a news conference. We will cover that live. Uh, yesterday with uh, Education Minister Lecce, the Ontario government revealed uh, that they will be uh, prepared for the virtual school option for next year. So if if we have to go back into where we are uh, right now, uh, I guess the plan is in place and the option is there for parents. Let's bring in Andy Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education, and with us now. Andy, great to talk to you again. I hope you're well. I am, and I'm one of those AstraZeneca people, so me me and you both. It's like, I hear you. I'm in the... I'm in the exact same boat as you, Andy. I don't know what one I'm getting next. Uh, I, I know, exactly. I'll have them all. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm actually I'm going to butt in line ahead of my kid, who's 12 yeah. to uh, 15, and see if I can get his. Uh, your thought. Let's start with that. Your thoughts on the kids uh, being approved oh. by Health Canada? Nasi hasn't said anything on yet on this yet, so I, I guess it's still good news. But I'm what are sorry, your thoughts? Maybe they should be. They should stay quiet, Nasi. Yeah, I um, hear you. My my scientific reaction is uh, yippee. Uh, that would be my scientific uh, reaction to the, I think it's going to make, it's a game changer in terms of, um, you know, trying to get this actually spread through the population. And, and it's going to make everybody feel better for one thing, but also make a difference to the thing we're going to talk about, which is education. Uh, but I know as a parent, my kids are grown ups, but um, both of them luckily happen to be in a circumstance where one's getting vaccinated today. Yes. Oh, and the good. other one's getting vaccinated next week. And boy, as a parent, does it ever make you feel better? So, isn't that funny how you feel that way after you finally get the shot? Because before, kids weren't even an issue, right? Yeah, but now, but it's it, you know, as we're looking at you know the next steps or the future, yeah. you know, definitely we can't have a, a society or education systems where the grown-ups are all vaccinated, but the yeah. kids are giving each other COVID and getting sick. Like, yeah. you know, obviously it's a it's a whole, you know, the whole idea of herd immunity and the whole society, it needs to uh, get all the way down there so that, we, you know, we can have some kind of real sea change, uh, one hopes, in the future, in the not-so-distant oh. future. All right, let's talk about virtual learning. Uh, we all know what that's about. We, we certainly are all up to speed on that now. Uh, and and talking about it as an option for next year and being planned uh, planned for 2021-22, uh, is this good planning or a sign of what we could and what we, we may see in the future? Well, I think what's important and is, is that it's not just the government saying this is going to be an option for next year. It's the government saying we're going to change the Education Act uh, so that it is always an option uh, from kindergarten all the way up that you can do your learning online um, and that also the control over lo- online learning will be handed over uh, to TVO's independent learning center. So it is a it is a big, huge change. If if this were only the government saying, you know what, we've got to keep this possibility open for another year, that would be totally understandable because you know, we've all been living in this and we all understand things change. So flexibility is important. And it's important that we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I think lots of great things have been learned about what works, what doesn't work, you know, where there are possibilities in online learning. But this, this isn't, you know, this isn't in terms of the government's own description of this. This isn't about that. This is about um, making this really significant change to the Education Act. And and boards are kind of left on the hook because they're still sort of responsible um, and sort of responsible for part of the funding of this, even though uh, the shift is that if I'm a parent, I can choose to have my little child in grade two learn from home and and that has to be provided to me. And that is not the best thing for children, I mean, to not put a too fine a point on it. It is that the teacher-student relationship face-to-face uh, is an incredibly important yeah. part of learning. I would agree with that. Should this always be an option? And and why wouldn't you want face-to-face learning? I mean, if there's not COVID, why would you want this as an option? Well, who knows? I mean, there are people right now who homeschool their children for right. various reasons. So, 
this is, you know, one wonder, this is sort of partly a way of going, now you can homeschool your children with all the resources of the public education system at hand. Um, so there are definitely people who want to make that choice. I think that, you know, and that's how it's being coached as, you know, everybody should have choices. Um, but it does, it is a kind of crack in the public education system to do this. And, and it's important in high school, it's always been an option. So kids, take courses online, and th- but they're run by school boards and they're run by, uh, you know, consortia of school boards work together to mer- make sure that there are lots of courses available, but they are taught by certified teachers. They have limited class sizes. There is, it is one-on-one. It's not like sort of a correspondence course, which is a little bit more what the independent learning so- center model is like. So that it's, it's, it's just like, I mean, the online learning that we have now, you know, yes, lots of it's been very, very difficult, but there are real teachers in real time doing, mm-hmm. the, doing, doing the teaching. Um, and the model that's being uh, proposed that, you know, apparently there's going to be legislation about for high school, um, it could involve courses where there isn't that, where there isn't real-time teaching and learning. Where it could. Do we know either way? Are we, the, the, is this speculation at this point? Well, no. It's, I mean, it's, not the, it's from the government's own documents. They said yeah. this is what we're going to do. Um, but it's interesting that they still haven't done it because it's actually going to – because they have to change the Education Act. So I w- it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether – yeah, whether or not this – particular change happens. I mean, Stephen Lecce said yesterday it was going to. So um, it's, and, you know, I guess the other thing is it's insane to be doing something like this in the middle of a pandemic. We're already in this huge education emergency. We need to be focusing on what do kids need in the fall or right now? Um, What are all the extra resources they're going to need? What kinds of supports are they going to need? Kids, teachers, educational assistants, everybody who works in schools, that's what we should be focusing on, not inventing a whole new part of the education system uh, that has where there's not a lot of evidence to back up uh, its use. But as you said, we, you know, we've all learned during COVID-19 that there's some things, uh, some hybrid versions of things that were better than the original situation, not necessarily replacing it, but adding to it. Uh, is this not uh, keeping, keeping in the same realm in the sense that, you know, uh, should we not continuously trying to be making online education better? Absolutely. And I think that they, I think this is not an example of that, because if instead what the government had announced was uh, here is lots more funding for next year, which they didn't. They just said boards, you can use even more of your reserves. Um, and and one of the things we really want to understand is we want to understand more about the effectiveness of online learning. We And so we are going to put more money into professional development. We're going to put more money into little pilot projects to really see where things can shine. That That is the thing one would hope for because, you know, it's 2021. Are we not, though, Annie, Annie, are we not in the middle of a pilot project? (laughs) If only we were normally with a – yes, we are. Um, But normally with an actual pilot project, you have researchers looking at the evidence and the results. And so you go, hmm, this, this, you know, these kids have done so much better or there are more kids getting all their credits in grade nine or whatever. You want to look and see whether, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And you will need to understand it from that perspective. But sadly, uh, right now, we don't have that happen. So you're right. We are in the middle of a big pilot, but it's not a pilot in the way pilots should be because there are other countries, other provinces are way ahead of Ontario in terms of really truly understanding what the impact has been. There's some, you know, the Toronto board's done some research looking at kids in grade one and they're worried that their reading is behind. There's little bits and pieces here and there, but there, you know, that too should have been put in place right away that there, you know, should have been people studying this, you know, up and down to understand what's working. And to to your point, to then be able to go, this works really well. Let's do more of it. I think we're all on the same page here, Annie. <laughs> yeah, I, I really see. I really see. I really see. That's what everybody's trying to do here. But you know, again, I, I'm looking at it through my lens. Uh, Annie Kidder, Executive Director, People for Education. Annie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay. Thanks. You too. Bye bye. 
All right, we've talked at length on this show about the uh, ties that the Chinese uh, Communist Party has in uh, Canada and how, um, you know, despite the bullying uh, and the two Michaels as such, uh, lots of examples, um, we continue to do business. We continue to allow them into areas uh, where there could be uh, sensitive information and they could end up um, having influence over uh, Canadian institutions. An interesting article in the Globe and Mail today, Alberta vows to curb universities' research ties to China. This is a piece from Stephen Chase and Robert Fife, and uh, the first paragraph reads as such, the Alberta, uh, the Alberta government is expressing alarm and vowing to take action to curtail the University of Alberta's collaboration with China in strategically important scientific and technology fields. To talk more about this, senior parliamentary reporter for The Globe, Stephen Chase is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Glad to be how here. Sig- how significant is this that Alberta is taking this stand? Are they the first to do so? We have not seen um, a willingness by government to dive into this issue. Um, so, yes, uh, many governments are very reluctant to talk. I'm talking about many governments. I mean, Ottawa and the provinces have traditionally been very reluctant to speak uh, strongly about research behavior at the universities because they don't want to be seen to impinging on academic freedom. But there is a concern, a growing concern, that a lot of the relationships and the engagement that occurred between Canada and Chinese state labs and Chinese uh, companies uh, from mainland China over the last 5 to 15 years have to be reexamined in the light of China's changing uh, status, and I mean we once considered them a uh, partner and now we consider them more of a rival or an adversary. And so uh, Mr. Nicolaitis's comments to the Globe and Mail indicate a change in the willingness of provincial governments to uh, speak more sharply about this and demand more of the universities. Are you surprised this is happening at the provincial level and not the federal level? No, because I think that um, the the provinces have been uh, um, have been uh, I think watching what's happening at the federal level, watching about the concerns that uh, innovation minister uh, Francois Philippe Champagne raised several months ago, where he notified or, or put people on notice that they are going to be uh, revising or, in fact, setting up rules for uh, how we should approach uh, research grants in the future, rules that now consider national security implications. So it's kind of like something's been rolling downhill, and the provinces are also uh, starting to jump on board. Will Ottawa react differently now that Alberta has jumped on this and pushed it up uh, pushed it up that hill per se? Possibly. I think that we have seen uh, greater and greater concerns being raised by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. The, the, the uh, CSIS has been really um, expanding its comments and being more sharply worded in its comments under uh, the current director, David Vigneault. And so we have seen um, increasing debate in the public sphere about this where we wouldn't have 10 or 15 years ago before uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping came to power. Is it too late for this? Are they already, are they already too influential, already controlling, and, and, and very hard to push back at this point? Uh, that's a hard question to answer. The... I guess the the first place you want to start is that um, you know this is not about uh, Chinese citizens and Chinese university researchers in and of themselves. It's the it's about the behavior of the Chinese state, which has the ability and the power under law to compel them to cooperate and comply. So there has been uh, King University did an extremely deep dive in terms of collaboration and sharing. Uh, with with Chinese state labs over the last 15 years. Um, In some cases, uh, we have, I believe, handed over a lot of technology, and this happens in the form of uh, under collaboration or research. But I think that there are um, 
there's still lots of um, there's still um, uh, lots of areas where uh, restricting or curbing things would 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 make a difference. And of course, this week at the parliamentary hearings on the topic, the former director director of CSA's Dick Fadden said Ottawa should prohibit universities from receiving money from foreign powers in strategic areas of research. And he named a few. He said he thought there would be about 10 or 12, avionics, space, nuclear, high-level optics, and so on. So no, I think this is very timely. And uh, I think um, I don't think the, 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 the horse has left the barn. I think there's still a lot that needs to be examined. What should China be involved with in Canadian universities? What should they not be involved in? Well, that's that's one of the things that people have raised, and there's a report out from the University of Alberta's China Institute by Margaret McQuaig Johnson. She's a former federal official who worked for many years uh, in in federal re- scientific research granting, and she said what you really have to worry about is these joint ventures. China has a goal to become dominant uh, in its own sphere in a number of technologies within 10 to 15 years, and it often forces Western researchers into a joint venture model. And what she's warned about in a very widely read report that was released last fall is that uh, often what happens is they, they, they end up the Chinese partner, which can be a university or a lab or a company, um, forces the Canadian researcher into a junior position in the joint venture, so a 60-40 split, which gives them con- a lot of control over what happens. And ultimately, she said that what has happened time and time again is the Chinese partner finally forces out the Canadian partner and then has the intellectual property. So that's one thing, is don't go into joint ventures where you have a minority of the shares. And secondly... Uh, you know, be very draw up some very good contracts about the sharing of intellectual property. So this is this gets into the weeds of the topic. But the fact is, is that the concern that she raised in this recent report is that we're giving away our intellectual property even when we're at the negotiating table. How will China react to this position from Alberta and these universities? Um, they're not pleased. They are very explicit about their interest in technology transfer. And they will see this as demonizing China, and uh, they will portray it as anti-China, and they will portray it as a uh, following the footsteps of other countries like the United States and Britain and Australia, which have also been uh, raising similar concerns and and shutting similar doors. Uh, Can uh, is that a valid uh, is that a valid response? I mean, obviously, if we if we give resistance to China, they scream that it's it's anti-China. And again, as you reinforce, we want to reinforce this is not about Canadian Chinese. This is about the Chinese Communist Party that rules China. Um, But we've seen this a lot. As soon as we start to question, they scream racism. Where is this going? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know, I think people have to be very clear that this is about, um, intellectual property and it's about research. It's not about, um, certainly not about race. And I think that, uh, that is why the government is trying to set out some guidelines so they can show that, uh, Mr. Champagne announced they were going to set out guidelines for research that will show that they're working from rules and it's not just arbitrary. It's not a an arbitrary move by the Canadian government uh, on a whim to do something. I think that helps if you can say you're following the rules you've set. Will this get lost in the sauce of a pandemic? Where and, and where do the two Michaels fit in this discussion? Well, the the pandemic is part of the problem. There have been uh, uh, repeated warnings from CSIS and and other. Uh, federal security agencies that uh, Russian and Chinese uh, uh, I want to say agents but Russian and Chinese uh, forces are using the pandemic or are out uh, during the pandemic trying to steal research and technology especially with related to to pandemic especially related to um, you know we're talking about the the the, uh, the vaccines 
treatment, and so on. So it's actually been a, a heightened problem during the, the pandemic, and so we've heard uh, several warnings on that front. With respect to the Michaels, um, you know, the Michaels are the two men who were locked up by Beijing, uh, you know, I guess uh, in 2018 uh, in an apparent in apparent uh, uh, retribution or retaliation, and they uh, are going to be stuck there probably until the Huawei CFO, Madam Meng, is freed mm. from, from Vancouver. So I'm not sure it has any bearing on this, but that is that incident, China's hostage diplomacy has, I think, really shaken Ottawa and, and changed uh, the opinion, the, the attitude towards China in Ottawa, as well, of course, in other Western countries. Clearly, the relationship with China and Canada and, and the rest of the free world, for this matter, is not getting any better soon. This is continuing to decline. Accurate? I think that what has happened is that um, since about 2011 or 2012, China has changed its approach. It used to have what uh, they used to call a hide and bide approach. You know, don't uh, just focus on your own country. Don't go out there in the world and try to change things. Don't get involved. They they were very much focused inwardly. And they have since about 2012 uh, focused much more outwardly and are trying to change rules and institutions and the international order to suit or accommodate their interests. And I think that's going to be a constant friction and a constant problem, especially since Western, uh, Western powers, and I would argue as well, uh, you know, Japan and other um, Asian democracies have, have, have flipped on China and now see it as a, an adversary rather than the way they saw it as a potential partner when even the United States pushed for their inclusion in the World Trade Organization back in 2000 under Bill Clinton. Hmm. Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. The headline, Alberta vows to curb university's research ties uh, to China. As always, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're you're welcome. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.